The antidote. 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 You're listening to the antidote with Dave Hawkins. With Christian music that doesn't suck. Randy Stonehill is known as one of the fathers of Christian rock music, and Randy's been kind enough to take some time and join The Antidote and share his thoughts on Christian rock music and how it's moved from its infancy to uh, today's era. Randy, your first album, Born Twice, it debuted in 1971, and it's considered one of Christian rock's most influential albums. What kind of reception did the album receive in Christian rock in general back in 71? Well, you know, Dave, um, that was, well, it, it certainly received um, a mixture of responses because that whole approach to sharing the gospel was so fresh and new. Um, but so it was really interesting to see the response to the music. You had, it was, there was a great polarization. You had, I think, some of the perhaps more cautious old school thinkers looking at rock and roll and thinking, oh, no good thing can come of this, you know. And, uh, but, you know, for guys like me, uh, for whom that music was such a powerful voice in my own life, I was just doing what came naturally. I was going, well, I was thinking, well, this Jesus came crashing into my life. This is nothing less than miraculous, and I want to share it with the tools I've been given. So I just was kind of guileless and and, uh, doing what I thought I should do. And then I found that my generation, kids that would never think to darken the doors of a church, we didn't even know what that was about, they were hearing the timeless message of the gospel in their own language. I'm Dave Hawkins, and this is The Antidote. This show has hit a milestone as tonight brings episode number 400. I was going to ignore the number and just carry on with my regular format, but then I thought about some of the past episodes and the guests who have visited with The Antidote. So tonight will be quite different, as I've pulled out a selection of interviews I've had with artists from all kinds of genres. The very first interview to air on this show led off tonight's broadcast. Randy Stonehill was featured in October of 2011 on episode number four. The man is a legend, recording music at the very beginning of the Christian music scene. And of course, the prime reason for any interview is that the artist has something important, fun, or interesting to say. And that's the case with the 25 interview segments queued up tonight, like this talk with My Epic. Let's go way back, way back early days of My Epic. So you first came on the scene back in 98, and you were known as the right-wing conspiracy. Wow. No, I, I really, <laughs> seriously, I seriously hope this has nothing to do with that Christian grindcore band of the same name. Uh, I didn't know there was another band of the same name, and we'll probably be suing them very shortly. It was not for, Yeah, it was, no. So the right-wing conspiracy isn't really my epic. It was me and my brother, Jesse, our drummer, and Matt Hogan, who was an original guitarist from my epic. It was the band we started in high school. It was really punk. It was punk rock. That's what I grew up on. That's what we all grew up on in our band. And that was Right Wing Conspiracy. And then we all went to college together. And we changed our name to Shaddai. And then uh, right after my junior year of college, we were going to go to Cornerstone. We were going to play Generator Stages. Brandon Evil or somebody from Tooth & Nail was going to hear us, sign us, and we were going to finish our year of college and be a real band. And we did all those things, except we just went there and broke up. (laughs) And so me and my brother and Matt felt like we weren't done yet and we wanted to keep making music and we were just starting to scratch the surface of its value as ministry and scratch the surface of art as a way to communicate. And, and so uh, I think Jeremiah, had I met him when he came to visit the co- same college we were at and he'd been at college for one year and I just said, well, I only know one guy I want to try out for bass. I have no idea if he's any good, but he's a rad dude. And Jeremiah tried out and showed up late, which I scolded him for. <laughs> and then um, the only riff I really wanted him to play, he never got the way I wanted it. And I was like, He's the guy. I didn't know anything about bass when I started my epic. I mean, that's just frankly the case. Uh, you know, I think I've learned a lot since, but I still don't know why you invited me in. We met over like bonding over punk rock. Yeah. Kids that are from a small town and you go play their town, like, what's it like to make it? To them, you tell them, well, what does make it mean? Because here's the reality of our lives. 
then the other kid, people that are like, well, you guys plan a lot. What do you think you're going to do if you make it? To them I say, what do you mean to make it? I get to hang out with my best friends. I get to do something I love. I get to use a gift the Lord's given me. I get to share the gospel, minister to people. That's all that ever is important to me. We started later in life. I was 25 or 26 when we got signed. They were 20, they were three years younger than me. So most of the bands, when they start touring, they're 19 or 20. We had our college degrees, some of us had two. So we just took a different out. This is ministry and this is art. And whatever happens with it, I mean, we made tons of decisions even when we didn't have the money to make them. We make tons of decisions now and don't ever think about the money. It's just like, can we feel called to do it? Does it seem valuable? Then let's do it. I've met with several artists who've cited me as being a big influence to their music. And I mean, I have one vocalist in particular who said that your album, The Everglow, motivated him to write music with a purpose. But, wow. when, but when you're actually doing the recording, did you envision the album having that kind of an impact on people? You know, I want to say yes, because I believed in it so strongly. And, um, you know, May was essentially the only part of my life at that point. I mean, we played 300 shows a year for the first two years that we were a band. So wow. there was never a time to sort of decompress from May. May was everything in those couple of years leading up to recording the Everglow. Um, but then, you, you know, I mean, you dream it up and you believe in it. And, you know, when you go on tour, you open up for bands that... Um, have more fans than you and you just believe well you know once we put out this new music like I believe that all these these people in this room are going to be fans of our record and I believe that these songs will have impact on them the same way that songs that impact on me in my life and have you know shaped and molded and changed me over the years and then and then on the other hand you just you can't understand it at all even after you've lived through it, you still don't understand it because there's certain parts of it that, you know, people who will comment on our Facebook page, we just had our daughter and we named her May. I'm walking down the aisle to a song off the Everglow. Um, our first dance is just to a May song. You know, these things, like you just can't believe them even when they're being told to you. And even if you do believe them, you don't fully comprehend the impact that you have on other people's lives where they make their lives and your music, the soundtrack for their lives. In the With this God style, I always have a tough time if I should be God considering spoken word as music, like performance, or reciting poetry. Sure. Is there a box that you would put it into? Uh, we, I joke about it all the time. My roommate, he was laughing the other day asking me what I tell people when they ask me what I do and how awkward that is or isn't. And, and the other day I got mixed up over my words because sometimes I'll say, hey, I'm going to go play a show. Sometimes I'm going to go perform at an event. But somebody asked me the other day and I just said, I play poetry. <laughs> they looked at me like, what are you talking about? But I didn't really do a whole lot to offer any explanation above and beyond it so I just kind of landed with it there and he said that that was perfect I mean I, generally I say I'm a performance artist or spoken word artist and and that probably makes more sense to people when you say you're going to perform um, but I do a lot of it within a band setting so they all play so I guess it just depends upon the context. Levi the Poet speaking about being a spoken word artist Opinions run strong from these next two artists, He-Sun Lee, then Garrett Russell of Silent Planet. Hip-hop includes some really popular Christian artists. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance that they could actually be keeping the door closed for other artists? Because they really tend to dominate the scene. I actually like the fact that you asked that because I don't get that asked a lot, but I think that is actually true. Um, as much as I feel like Lecrae and the whole Reach camp, they have opened a lot of doors for um, other artists, you know, including myself, because Christian hip hop was very, you know, close. You know, a lot of people didn't think about it or care about it. They thought it was corny, but I've heard so many people said, oh, when I heard Lecrae or I heard Reach, you know, I realized Christian hip hop isn't whack, you know, so it, it really opened the path for a lot of us to do our thing. But at the same time, I feel like it's like a popularity contest in Christian hip-hop. You know, if you're not in reach, if you're not one of these artists, you know, you're not going to get booked. You know, and, and I think it's not just being on reach records, it's also being a female. I don't think any female rappers have ever really toured 
on these major tours. It's always the same artist. It's like, okay, if we didn't get this person from Reach, next year we'll get this person from Reach, and the year after that we'll get this other person from Reach. It's always somebody from like a very popular record label. And you know, that's life. It's not just Christian hip hop. You know, you go with what's popular, you go with who sells and puts people in the seats. But uh, I think it also is limiting because um, it makes it kind of hard in other ways for people like myself to get shows. Because if you're booking the same people, how are the other people <laughs> supposed to get these uh, chances? And um, I mean, I'm not saying I've never gotten opportunities. I have. I've, I've been on multiple festivals, but it's just a struggle, you know. And I, and I think on top of it, it's just being female. It's uh, it's almost impossible to get a uh, headline on these major tours. And, um, you know, something I'm working on, and uh, hopefully we could change that in the future. And that would keep it from being boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. You're monotonous, the same routine. Yeah. The language that we use that very much is hateful towards not only women, but also, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender people, you know. And how do you find Christians as general tend to treat people from the LGBTQ society? Um, you know, I, I'm not going to definitely hop on a train and say that the average Christian is hateful of people who are LGBTQ, because I, th I don't think that's true. I, I think there are Christians who are hateful and non-Christians who are hateful of people, and that's really wrong, and that's a sickness, and that's, that's a really sad thing to see. Um, I, I, I think that the average Christian is often maybe confused uh, that, you know, people don't have a straight sexual orientation. I think a lot of Christians talk about being gay in the abstract, like, right? do gay people go to heaven? They, they talk about it like a concept or something, which is really sad because gay people are people, you know, they, they are human beings. Christians often talk about homosexuality in the abstract because they don't know that they have a ton of gay friends. They, they just might not know it. They might be completely oblivious to it. You know, I mean, I was raised to believe that less than 1% of the population could identify as LGBTQ, and that's just not true. But I, I was taught that as a young child growing up in a Christian school, that like, it's a very weird thing, and like, be careful if you ever encounter them. And it, it was very othering, you know, it's very much like they're not part of our in-group. You know, it's unfortunate that some Christians have decided it's like a primary sin or something. Like, it's it's like you got murder and you have being gay or something, as if being gay is an action, you know, like as if like people choose to be, which I think is something that a lot of Christians still believe is that, that it's a conscious decision, you know, there's no evidence of and I think is untrue. And that, that's really part of the hatefulness is that assuming that like, you know, these people are choosing to be different or something, um, which first of all, I think we can celebrate their difference. And second of all, I don't believe that it's a choice for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are, are born in that way. And I think God makes people that way. And that's obviously something that a lot of Christians would not be happy with me saying. But I've met a lot of gay people who are, I think, very healthy in their sexuality, very, very full of love, very full of life frankly have a healthier sexuality than, than most straight people I meet. You know, when the divorce rate in North America is somewhere floating around 50% range for evangelical Christians, I think it's safe to say that none of us have sexuality figured out in an incredibly healthy way. <laughs> I think a lot of Christian churches are really living in a bit of a cloistered community where yeah. they really just don't associate with people outside of their own intimate group. I agree. And, and I think as a Christian, we're called to intentional diversity. That is intentionally getting outside of what's comfortable and like finding people um, who are, you know, kind of set out in the margins and to identify with them through solidarity, through common experience, through relationships. And so I think unless you're intentionally trying to get outside of your bubble, whatever bubble that is, but you know, even if you're an atheist, vegan, uh, crust punk band, you know, you have to choose to identify with people outside of what the group you're in, you know, and I think that that's a choice that all humans need to make to be better humans and, and better um, citizens of the world. And unfortunately, it's very easy for Christians because it's a large, um, dominant culture. It's very easy for them to never get outside of it. The Antidote is here with Eric O'Young of the band Future of Forestry. Eric, thanks for sharing your time with The Antidote. Yeah, it's great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Your breakthrough was your debut album, Twilight. 
And that album was really quite an eye-opener for uh, listeners used to the typical music offered by Christian artists. But was this true to your vision, or was this part of the record label of Credential also influencing that? A lot of times I don't necessarily have a vision of who the album is going out to. And I know record labels like to have that. Managers like to have that. Um, All the people whose job it is to get the album out, they like to have that. But sometimes from the artist's perspective, it's just making music. And so for me, um, I didn't care a whole lot whether the audience was Christian or not Christian. I just wanted to make good music and I wanted to get it out there and I wanted it to be honest. It's been said that Christians produce bad art. Do you feel there's any truth to that statement? You know, I think the sad thing is is there's bad art in every genre of music. So um, I know that Christian music gets a bad rap for it. Yet at the same time, I have definitely got my feet wet in the Christian industry and have found a lot of really bad musicians. So um, (laughs) I I don't want to pick on Christian music, but yet To be honest, I don't listen to a whole lot of Christian music because uh, a lot of it is kind of regurgitated music that is just trying to be like a lot of pop music out there. It's definitely tough to find good Christian music and you got to do a lot of searching and you got to spend a lot of time. Eric O'Young, an incredibly talented guy. One of my favorite people to speak with has always been Leonore, Jeff the Girl of Five Iron Frenzy. Here she comes. The Anandota has been joined by Leonora Ortega-Till of Five Iron Frenzy. Leonora, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. In 2012, I met two guys at one of your shows who drove 30 hours non-stop Los Angeles to New Hampshire to see you guys play. All bands say they have a dedicated fan base, but I mean, that's nothing in comparison to your fans. So why are they so obsessed? I really do firmly believe that if you say you're a Five Iron fan, it denotes special qualities and abilities about you. It seems like we hit a nerve with the youth of America and especially Christian youth, people that felt nuanced, people that had a certain type of spirituality, a certain type of political desire and want as far as social action goes, and also quirky, fun, crazy people. And I think that when we added our personality to our albums and didn't hold back or go with what a record label would say, when we just really were ourselves and wrote songs about what we cared about and what we enjoyed, it hit a nerve with the youth. We basically were a voice for people that already existed. We didn't create any kind of fan. It just, they came out of the woodworks and said, hey, we're the same. But now those youth aren't youth anymore. They're middle-aged, they're moms and dads, just like you are. You find that's going to change? No, I think it's exactly the same. Now the, the question is, how do we raise our children? How do we make a society? How do we keep day jobs and be those same people, the people that want to change the world, the people that want to do something good, the people that don't want to settle? And I think lyrically, our new album tackles all of those concepts as we are now adults. I'm 37, and when I joined the band, I was 18, and I am a mother of two and a wife. I think people are really going to resonate with the lyrics on this new album because we're, we're not necessarily old guys. <laughs> We still feel very much young and very much a burden and very much want to use our voice. So, and we're, we're still fun. I think people want someone to give them the answers instead of saying we don't know the answers and we're not about giving answers. And in fact, even more now that we've gotten older and more solidified in our faith, or for two people in our band who are no longer Christians, we have stepped back from the, the answers and relished more in the questions. And in fact, our new album ends on a question note, which is so weird and felt physically almost vomitous for me to not end with a worship, but to end with a question. I mean, that's the audacity of doubt. And I have the audacity of faith, but I I am trusting that it's okay to go to that place and our fans can handle it. It's been said many times that Mute Math has one of the greatest of live shows. I mean, Alternative Press declared Mute Math as the number one band you need to see live before you die. How difficult is it for you both artistically and physically to maintain that kind of status? Well, with each passing year, the physical aspect of it is becoming quite daunting. I'm in my mid-30s now, so uh, I guess I didn't quite think that through eight years ago. It's just so much fun. That's the bottom line. We have a blast when we go on stage. It's exhilarating. We're doing what we love. And um, no matter how we feel before we walk on stage, as soon as we hit that first note and the electricity starts happening and the the reaction from the crowd surfaces, you just go to another place. And it's very otherworldly and and we're addicted to it. So I hope you get to do this for a while. I feel pretty fortunate I'm in a band with some very capable uh, musicians. Just kind of 
giving them the green light makes for a nice roller coaster ride. You wrote a song pre Mute Map days called Gummy Bear. But now you have your own gummy. You have Steve Government in the band. So did that make that song title prophetic? First of all, what's amazing is that is the song before Mute Map I get asked the most about, which is so weird. It was just the B side to, um, to one of the Earth Zoo projects. Yes, and it was called Gummy Buffalo, and it might have been. And no one's made that connection before, and that's really going to have me pondering the rest of the day now. <laughs> I'm going to go back and look at those lyrics. Well, I'm Dave Hawkins, and my thanks go to Paul Meany of Mute Math for sharing your time with the antidote. Paul, thanks a lot for uh, joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks. Now, over the years, there have been comments that Family Force 5 isn't Christian enough. How do you respond to that? Um, I think that statement in itself is kind of funny sounding to me. I, I you know, don't think the word Christian is a, an adjective. I think it's more of a noun. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny for us to, to be like, what does that mean? And uh, we've tried to understand what people mean when they say that. And I think everybody just kind of has a different perspective of what a Christian band should look like or sound like or, uh, you know, be like. And we don't fit any of those definitions. So I think that's probably where that usually creates a bit of a disconnect or a concern. Um, you don't see a lot of, uh, you know, faith-based artists that are spinning their guitars around their heads and playing in bars and, and going on warp tour and AP tour and um, doing that kind of stuff. I mean, it's very unique and I think it's very authentic and a big part of who we are. We feel very called to do our ministry in a, in a way that's very different from what Christian bands in the past have done. You know, I, I think it's very important for us to connect with people outside of the church and people that normally wouldn't uh, be at a quote-unquote Christian show. Uh, but, um, you know, we do have the, the fortune uh, and the blessing of coming behind some other bands that have kind of paved the way a little bit, like Striper or P.O.D. or uh, DC Talk or Amberlynn or Under Oath, where, you know, we are able to, to play to kids who may not know any Christians or may not have uh, ever experienced the love of Christ or, or been told about the message of Christ and uh, it, it's pretty exciting for us and thrilling that we we have that opportunity to reach several different types of people and um, it's exciting and we, we knew we'd receive some backlash and certainly be you know getting some flack here and there but it's fine it comes with the territory so it's all right without a doubt you guys have probably one of the greatest live shows in the business how tough is it for you to sort of keep raising the bar on each tour? It's very tough. We try to spend just as much time getting creative about coming up with the next new idea as for our live show that we do creating new music. And I mean, sometimes we'll spend a whole week just being like, all right, who's got new ideas? Who's got ideas? Let's try this and let's practice this. And yeah, I mean, it's hilarious that most bands sit there and practice guitar parts all day, but our rehearsals are more about like, uh, hey, we just built this 800-pound, seven-foot-tall drum machine. Now we got to learn how to play it. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of what our rehearsals usually turn into is more about like lighting and crazy different antics that we're trying. But um, you know, one of my just favorite things about the band is we try to be creative in, in the over-the-top elements of the show. You know, there's a lot of pyro out there, or cryo, or whatever you call that stuff. That uh, is cool. I'm not definitely not dogging it or anything, but um, two years ago, I guess, we bought this giant gerbil ball, and it's an inflatable <laughs> hamster thing that Solo Activator gets inside and runs around on top of the crowd, and and it's kind of amazing. We're like, we just spent like $300 on this thing that we got from New Zealand, and everybody else is spending like a billion dollars on all this fireworks for their shows, and our thing's kind of fun, you know? <laughs> we like it. We like it. You just heard from three incredible live bands, Five Iron Frenzy, Mute Math, and Family Force Five. Now we head into some artists whose music you can consider extreme. Listen to Easter Teeth, then Josh Goggin of 68, and we'll bring in Tantrum of the Muse with Stephen Sarrell. The music of Easter Teeth Unique. It also makes me interested to know whether being unique has its own set of problems. I have no um, problem. It might have Josh, problems. Josh has no problems. No, I mean, um, if there are promoters or bookers who are concerned with having a bill be very cohesive, 
then they don't know what to do with us. But fortunately, we come across enough people who like the idea of a mixed bill. Uh, so, you know, we're not starving for shows. If a promoter doesn't want us because they're worried about a mixed bill, they apparently just have trouble identifying incredible bands that they need <laughs> to have on any bill they're putting together. <laughs> Quite a bit of the music of Easter Teeth carries a Christian theme. I'm wondering how accepting Christians are of your music. I mean, any gnashing of teeth? Sorry, that was a really bad, lame joke there. Uh, I, I don't think we ever... We haven't had much experience other than the last tour with Christians. Yeah, I mean, we hardly ever play with Christians. You just don't allow them to come to your shows. <laughs> oh, well, no, they can come to our shows. Yeah. You know, there's usually not other Christian bands on the bill, or we're not playing to like a specific Christian audience, like through a church or anything like that, for the most part. But I don't think we've ever had any like backlash from the church or anything. I mean, we get along well with people on both sides. There's no way that Easter Teeth could be called a ministry band, so why bring in those Christian themes? So. What you mean by a ministry band is evangelistic or, you know, trying to proselytize through the music. Um, yeah, that's never really been the, the priority. But what we do like to do is have music that we, first and foremost, that we think God's going to like. So he'll want to sit through a half hour of us playing, you know, and uh, if other people like it too, then that's awesome. So, you know, everything is, is meant to be uplifting and something that we can do that's, you know, worshipful, but outside of the, the church setting. You know, the Bible's just awesome. And there's really good subject matter. It, you know, again, let's factor in laziness here. If I've got a block rock and beat ready to go, and we have a sweet, sweet bass line ready, and we're like, okay, well, this thing needs lyrics now. One thing you gotta remember is both of us have to sing. He doesn't want to sing about my ex-girlfriends, and I don't want to sing about his wife. Uh, <laughs> but one thing you can always go to is like, hey man, here's an awesome story from about Samson or whatever. And it's like, yeah, let's let's do that as what we're kind of touching on. And the Bible's full of those things. You know what I mean? And I've actually been surprised too, a lot of even, you know, irreligious people and non-Christian people, they actually kind of like it as far as just like the subject matter story-wise, you know, because everyone's sort of familiar with this story or that story from the Bible. It's almost like 68 bridges between chaos and art. Is there a defining line between those two? I don't think so, you know, I mean... I think there's a little chaos in everything and I, and I think art needs to be chaotic I, I like pictures of roses and paintings and this and the other but at the end of the day it's like I, I like chaos and something that again sort of defines life and defines sort of where you're at and what you do and um, for me it's there's no distinction I'm just creating art and sometimes it feels very very smooth and everything's even with the music I write sometimes it, it feels good there's a harmony going on or whatever but then sometimes yeah, I want that tension I want it to feel uneasy you know and stressful and and, uh, and I think you know as I create art sometimes it's one way sometimes it's another way but together it, it makes something that you know I think as far as I can relate to you know what I mean I, I can relate to the beauty and the stress you know because that's the way life is to me you know Tantrum the Muse really didn't fit into any typical slot in the music spectrum. So you've got to describe the style of your music. Oh, man, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we were just, like I said, we were just picking up on like um, different kinds of bands and we were just trying to like cram it all in. I think a lot of people hear the Tantrum stuff and they're like, man, this is like, you know, so clever and smart and, you know, progressive and everything. But I think we were really bad playing music. But... <laughs> But like we were really good at doing the songs live, doing them in a way that was like really intense and loud. And like the, the CDs we put out, don't even cut what it was like to see us live. Like if you ask anyone who's seen Tantrum when he's live, like that's kind of like the real experience. Like we were kind of like a sort of a live thing, and we were good at that. But none of us really were professionals at anything. Like 
you know, like I could barely play the guitar. Rick is amazing at drums, and Jim was amazing at bass, but we were just scrapping our equipment together and duct taping stuff. And I think it was the music came from just being so inspired by so many different bands, but not having the, the grace of learning them throughout your 20 years of life that you're alive at the time. Just sort of discovering them all within like two years and just being kind of overwhelmed by it. That was kind of the sound, I think. You know, I describe your style as marginally controlled chaos. <laughs> Any accuracy there? <laughs> controlled in the sense that we got really tight <laughs> at playing. <laughs> Nothing could be better than meeting with my favorite metal bands and asking about the art of metal. Here's my conversations with August Burns Red, Sleeping Giant, and Demon Hunter. This is The Antidote with Dave Hawkins, and we're here with the one and only August Burns Red. And I'm speaking with vocalist Jacob Loris. Hey, how's it going? I'm Jake Loris, lead vocalist of August Burns Red, and I'm actually really, really excited to do this interview. Yeah, that makes me glad too. <laughs> but I think you're just being polite. <laughs> so ABR seems to be reaching into a, almost an art metal realm. So what's up with this musical progression? Honestly, the simplest response to that is just progression, growth in the band. As musicians and just as we uh, mature as, you know, into adulthood and, and grow in the music world, I think it's just the direction that we're just naturally taking. It's not anything that we've um, said, hey, you know, this is what we're going to do. I think it's really just is what's just evolving from uh, our musicianship and just um, maturing as a musician. So. I like it. I, I think it's a cool direction because I, I think it's something more clever. And for August Burns Red, we've never really wanted to be the same ever on any record, or, or even you know trying to just let each track have its own identity. You know, I think it's really important for us. So I think with that kind of concrete like foundation, I think what's birthed is uh, what you're saying is like this um, already metal music. You know what I mean? I think what our thing is that we want to progress and stay in our realm as far as what August Burns Red is and what the root of August Burns Red is musically. Um, yet we do want to experiment. We do want to go outside the box. And we don't want to write the same record over again. I think the, the day musicians stop growing is the day that fans stop listening. Um, because they don't want to hear another Constellations. They don't want to hear another Messengers. Even if they say, oh, I like Messengers better, well, had we wrote another Messengers, you would be saying to me, wow, you wrote Messengers again, you know, and uh, that would have brought disappointment as well. So it's really um, the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. So I'm going to ask you to be a little self-analytical, and this is a bit of a pointed question, but you have to admit, Metal Realms, it's a fairly congested genre. What do you think makes August Burnt Red stand out from the rest of the crowd? That's a really difficult question, and however I respond to this, I just want uh, people to know that it's not an ego trip or, or, or boasting by any means because I don't like doing that. And quite frankly, I, I think a lot of bands aren't very different from one another. And it's really hard to find something that's new under the sun because um, a lot of things, like you said, I mean, this, this industry is oversaturated. I think one thing is that our inspiration, our, our influences, we're influenced by music that is not a metal uh, genre. We listen to a lot of ambient music, a lot of acoustic stuff, a lot of um, indie rock, or just um, things that aren't fitting to the demographic of the uh, metal industry. So I think that might have a, a bit of a, um, an impact. I'll never say that we fully sound different. It's never fully yours. You know, you have a foundation, you have bricks that you build off of. However, what I've always said to kids that say they want to be in a band or they've got a band, take what you know and apply it, but don't replicate. Soak it in and absorb it, but continue to be you, you know? Because uh, that's the important thing. That's that's what's gonna really shine through. And that's, I think, the key. We all decide, we all make decisions. There's not just, you know, one cook in the kitchen. So with that being said, if there's new ideas coming from four or five other guys, and we're all humble enough to respect those ideas and use them and apply them, I think that that's the real, you know, progression part, not just having one guy write songs all the time um, and having one guy write the lyrics all the time, you know, and I think that's what keeps us not different, but on top. So it's, it's really more heart stuff and internal stuff than it is anything else. 
The music of Sleeping Giant is heavy, and so many Christians still equate that music with darkness, and some even take it further and say that metal and hardcore come from the devil. I'm sure you've heard it all before. How do you respond to people when they bring that up? Well, I mean, honestly and truly, it's like, I don't actually worry about too much of that. When I've heard it, I've thought, well, it's the source. That's what people are really talking about, you know? And, and the reality of the situation is that God invented music and the enemy is a, he perverts what's already there. He corrupts what's already been created. He can't create anything. And so the idea of tone and frequency, music and sound, even Davidic worship and praise, there was times when it was aggressive. You know, the Hebrew word for praise, Barak, means to bow, but then the, the Hebrew word for praise, Shabbat, means to shout in a loud voice. And so I'd imagine if we could see David in the tabernacle back in the day, we'd feel very freaked out by the way he was worshiping and the undignified nature in which he danced before the presence of God. I think it doesn't look anything like sitting in rows with a light show, you know, on a Sunday morning. So I don't really worry too much about some of the cultural differences. I would just say that God invented music and the enemy has been the one that sort of counterfeited what God made. And uh, all we're doing is a redemptive work, taking back what already belongs to Jesus and giving it to his people again. So I don't really worry about that stuff too much. That makes you a current day David. You dance on stage. I do dance on stage. I love it. That's one of the only places I can kind of get that wild in worship. And so it's, it's a special time for me. And uh, I, I feel like some of what we do in the hardcore scene, some of the values, um, some of the aggression, even some of the expression, it's really a part of how we are designed to worship. And uh, it's something that's lacking in many modern day worship contexts. So I'm grateful to have a forum to be able to express that in a healthy way with the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus as the source of my life for that to come out in worship. Um, people need to see that it's possible to praise God in an unconventional way. Musicians and bands are referred to as artists, but Ryan, you take that up another notch by also having your own graphic art company. How does the art of music mesh with the visual arts? Well, the aesthetic of the band has always been super important. Um, and my involvement with the visual side of things for the band and for other bands has been a, a really important part of, I think, our success and our um, fan base over the years. Um, I think that even people that aren't, maybe aren't artists themselves, I think you still realize when they're kind of artistic in every angle and every avenue. Um, when a band that I like isn't just great musically, but everything else that they have to offer, whether it's merchandise or music videos or photo shoot or album packaging or special packaging or you know live show uh, what they wear on stage what you know all that kind of stuff every little aspect down to the smallest detail of the aesthetic when that's all feels quality and feels like it was thought out it makes that whole the whole package um, it, it just feels better feels more quality feels like there was more thought put into it and I've always liked that about certain bands there are certain bands that just have it dialed and those are the ones that I kind of gravitate to more I feel like we give our fans a lot outside of the music. We give them a lot to kind of digest. Um, and so if we're not going to be out on the road all the time, the least we can do is offer cool merchandise or make more music videos than most bands or even be in the studio more than most bands. So we try and kind of fill in the gaps of not touring with, you know, at least giving something of, of the band. But my kind of visual mind and my music mind are one and the same and melded. I'm always thinking visually, even when I'm writing songs, I'm thinking about them visually. I'm, I'm thinking about album artwork for records that are, you know, two, three records down the road. Um, the wheels are always turning, you know, about how something's going to look. I'm going to design something or what this photo shoot's going to look like or whatever for a record. So it's all those wheels are kind of moving in unison while I'm writing or while we're in the studio or whatever it is. So it's, I think it helps just make everything feel like a, a more cohesive unit. The Antidote's been speaking with Ryan Clark of Demon Hunter. And that was Ryan Clark, the amazing vocalist for Demon Hunter. Now we speak about creativity with David of Remedy Drive. Over the years, Remedy Drive has been signed to a couple of labels, Centricity and Word. Does now being an independent band open things up for you artistically that you weren't able to do on a label? You can't overstate that enough. 
the um, compression and the sanitizing and the shrink wrapping of my creative soul is something that I'm still recovering from. There's just such a narrow amount of bandwidth and you can't go outside the lines. It's just a, such a narrow view of the world and a narrow view of what art should be. And uh, honestly, I had a guy tell me, hey, it's not so much about making art, you just have to figure out the craft of making something that's gonna work. And I just couldn't live that way. I'm an artist. I didn't set out to make jingles to sell a worldview. Not to say that they're not successful in doing that, and they are successful in doing that. I had a marketing director say to me, he said, listen, I'm a whore, I just need something I can sell. And I just don't buy into that worldview. I can't do it. I cannot be a commodity, and I will not be shrink-wrapped. I will not have the intimate depths of my heart shrink-wrapped and, and reduced to the lowest common denominator. So what you said times a million. <laughs> well, I think then you're going to relate to what I'm about to bring up because I'm a really critical guy. And the music that came from Remedy Drive prior to Commodity was very commercial. And that's the kind of music that doesn't keep my attention. I brought up the same point with other artists. Should the music created by Christians be safe or should it be challenging? Well, it should be the most challenging. And this idea of safe for the whole family, um, concentrating only on what is positive, concentrating only on what is encouraging, and then taking things. And if there is an element of darkness and brokenness in the verse, just painting it with this overwhelmingly lopsided, optimistic, bright, glossing over. Um, yes, we who claim to have tapped into the most creative source in the universe, creativity itself, the creator, we should, of all people, be the most creative and the most artistic. And what we have to say should be challenging the way that the words of Jesus Christ were challenging and the prophets were challenging. And that kind of stuff is, is not allowed in the positive, encouraging, safe of the whole family realm. But there's certainly a large number of people that want that sanitized world. That's, that's a great question. Do they want it or are they being force-fed it? Good point. I, I would be in conversations in A&R meetings and they have commoditized their target market. They call her Becky. And on a regular basis, they're talking about Becky and, you know, she's driving in a minivan in Michigan and she has two kids and she has three minutes where she dropped them off at school and she just needs to be encouraged. She just needs to be told everything's going to be okay. And I, I think they've commoditized me, but they also commoditize her and they, they reduce her and they, they don't give her the credit that she deserves because I, I meet people in that same demographic all over the country and all over the world and they want to be challenged. They want someone to lead them towards dangerous unselfishness. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., they're, they're looking for that. And they're, if they don't find it on those Christian airwaves, they're going to find it somewhere. You gave up your home and possessions to travel full-time as White Collar Sideshow. How difficult was it for you to come to that decision? Uh, it was like nothing. I, I just felt like I was told to do that. I was told to jump, and so I didn't question it, and we just did it. It took us about, I don't know, two and a half years to sell everything, but once we finally did, it was there was so much freedom. I think people would be surprised to realize how bound down they are with their possessions, and then once you let that go, I mean, even waking up in an empty house for however many months, it was freedom. So just to kind of give all that up and not be bound by possessions anymore, it's awesome. It was scary too though. I mean, living comfortably and then going, I remember our first night of sleeping in an RV was like, oh man, what are we really doing here? The match was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I don't think we slept. So we're quite used to it now and we often call ourselves just other redneck gypsies and, and just living on the road. and. Uh, it's not the lifestyle that everyone would get used to, but for us, I mean, we're, we're holding it down. I mean, we're getting there and uh, trying to figure it all out <laughs> still. Including stopping and doing interviews from a McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> exactly. Well, the kids were too loud inside, so we figured it'd be better with the motorcycles than the cars outside. <laughs> this is going to sound harsh, but I mean, CCM isn't known for having depth. It was funny because often you were lumped in with the CCM market, but reality was, I mean, you guys actually have musical talent and thoughtful lyrics. Well, I appreciate the compliment, and uh, I can relate with what you're saying. Uh, 
But we were fortunate at the time to have uh, great uh, leaders who are working our record, like Lauren Ballman and Jim Chafee, and particularly Steven Taylor, who happens to be a an artist himself, a good one, and he also was running the ship for Squint Records, which was our distribution label. You know, Steve's an artist, artist. You know, there's a couple guys in that world, like Steve and um, Phil Peggy and uh, Jars Clay. There's there. There are a few real good eggs there, and Steve was one of them. So he was sort of our boss, and he was running the show. So he got it, and um, we were very, very fortunate to have him sort of let us do what we do and not try to change too much, you know? Steve understood that we were just a bunch of kids um, from New York, and we weren't too familiar with that world, the CCM world. And so it was a fine line of playing our music and doing what we do, yet being courteous in someone else's living room. It was it was really tricky as kids to figure out that they sold integrity to sell a record. And that, I think, was unique and kind of strange as a kid. Your lyrics with Burlap to Cashmere are quite interesting because you followed two different paths. You write some songs with very obvious lyrics, but then others are quite cryptic. I think most artists tend to write just one way or the other. Do you enjoy following these different directions? That's a great question. I don't know if I'm aware of it. Uh, I think the older I get, the harder it is to even write a song. Um, And if I do write a song, it's a great thing. But I do cling to uh, being more cryptic and and more mystic only because it's enticing. You know, it's that scent in the air that you smell. You just want to grasp it, but you can't. And so you try to explain it, but you can't explain it the way you would normally explain, you know, table salt or, you know, or ketchup. You have to sort of really hint at it and you have to whisper shadows towards it um, to make sense of it. And I think that if you have an open mind listening to some of the pictures I create, um, you can smell it, but you can't describe it. In my opinion, that's what life is about. It's really about just smelling that mystery and, and not necessarily figuring it out, but just wanting more and wanting more and wanting more. And to me, this is this is what divinity is about. Divinity is about a sense of something greater. And I think that's what I'm trying to tap into, not purposely, but almost a, an inner need for my spiritual growth and, and peace of mind. Brilliant music as all was coming from Burlap to Cashmere. It was a real honor having them on The Antidote. I've always enjoyed speaking with Christian artists from around the world. Coming up is a chat with Japan's Amari Tones, and then Nuteki from Belarus. We have a special guest, Tak Nakamane, who's come for a talk with The Antidote. It's good to have you here, Tak. Ah, thank you, Dave. (laughs) You've called your band Imari Tones. Yes, yes, it is called Imari Tones. Is metal really the heart of the band? Yes, you know, basically, you know, uh, we play metal and I think it is kind of classic metal, like 80s style, basically. Sometimes, you know, we do some uh, alternative stuff and hard rock stuff. Then, with it being 80s style metal, does that mean you actually want to live in the past? Uh, that's a difficult question, you know. As a guitar player, I was hugely influenced by Eddie Van Halen, and I can say, you know, uh, I'm a, uh, one of those Eddie Van Halen clones, you know. <laughs> Too many Eddie Van Halen clones on this planet, but... Uh, but maybe not uh, so yeah. many Eddie Van Halen clones in Japan. Uh, I think there are so, so many in Japan too, but I like to consider myself as a, uh, one of the better clones. <laughs> <laughs> Misha from the Belarus band Nuteki is here with The Antidote. Misha, really great to have you here. Yeah, so great to to speak with you, Dave, as well. If you had grown up in North America instead of Belarus, 
would the message in your music have been different? Uh, I think probably music can be different, but the same message that probably sometimes you need to step out from your comfort zone to see your your life changed. Sometimes you need to step out of the boat. Like we, we know this famous story between the Jesus and Peter, you know, when the Peter should go upon water. So, but he need, needed to step out of the boat, like comfort place, to do something with your life. But through that, actually changed others' lives. And probably the message would be the same. It will be more radical even, I think, than we doing here, because probably it's more difficult to call people step out of the comfort zone in the Western world than here. But it's only a way how, how we can find the truth, how we can find what we were born for, and kind of this thing. So still, we want to challenge people and change the world together through that. Do you think sometimes that lyrics could actually be a distraction from a song instead of adding to it? Yeah, actually, I sometimes I think we have the, the better advantage of being instrumental because, you know, you can relate to your own kind of uh, thinking or create a little story that's going on in your head when you hear us. And sometimes when you got lyrics, it, it limits it, right? Now it's this specific story and you can never get around that and the music will never mean anything else but that story. So it's nice to like have our own kind of like thing going and, and it's instrumental and, and you kind of just write it for what it is and, uh, and make your own kind of movie or story out of it. And uh, so I think we have an advantage. That's my opinion, but I think we're unique and it's different. So, you know, it's nice to play a show and, and almost nine times out of 10, we're the only band with no vocalists. And so that makes us stand out. That's a good thing, you know, and because uh, we're different than all the rest of the bands. Plus my guitar is louder because there's no vocal, so that's always a bonus. Yeah. That's another yeah. one too, is we can optimize on our dynamics, you know, the drums carrying the low end to the mid range and then Brandon coming in with also the low end all the way to the, the high range, you know, and so the, the guy at the board is always so much more giving of, of the volume because he knows that we have much more play than having a four or five piece because you have to kind of delegate that space for each musician to have their slot so that you're not just like a, you know, just a disaster of sound. Yeah, plus at the end of the day we get paid more money too because only two of us, not four, so. <laughs> we get paid? Yeah, well, yeah, we made like 12 bucks tonight, so look at that, six <laughs> bucks each, come on. There's four guys, three dollars each. No, that's we made not even, more than that, we made more. That's not even a happy meal. Come on. Well, plus you keep the sound guy happy because he's only going to worry about two of you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. And we, have, and we hardly argue. I mean, when we do, it's just... Sometimes like buddy bears are just always you know, <laughs> cool with each other. Sometimes yeah. I argue in my own mind and then I start yelling at him. He doesn't even know what, I, what he said. Yeah. You know what though? Some of the best bands, or not bands I should say, some of the best legendary uh, characters are always twos, right? We got Blues Brothers, Xi Jinping, Bill and Ted. So we're just trying to be another version of that, but at the same time, <laughs> taking music serious. Great example. That's to, the you know, weirdest mix of people I've ever heard somebody bring up. It's true, but if there's ever a movie, you'll probably get it more. Twos, man. Twos. <laughs> It's sad to pull up an interview like that and remember that the band is gone, like Salt of the Chief Cornerstone. Now, Sean Michel brings his music influences into the conversation. Well, here, you're talking about really some of the people that, you know, you're impressed by now, some of the seniors that are in the field. Who inspired you in your younger years? Um, so, yeah, my influences were real narrow at first, but it was it was always black American music. That's what really heavily influenced me. And, you know, to me, that's what I really connected with musically and not just, I mean, just everything inside, inwardly. I connected with uh, black American music, whether it was like soul or R&B or, uh, you know, I didn't hear a whole lot of blues when I was little, but that's what I connected with. And so that's what I tried to emulate and imitate as well whenever I would sing as a kid. And I guess to make our listeners aware is that, yeah, you're not black, you are white. Yes, yeah, well, I'm white in skin, but uh, I think there's an old black lady inside of me trying to trying to get out every time when, uh, <laughs> when I play. So, uh, yeah, I have a tendency to shake my hips a little too much and, you know, do the whole Elvis pelvis thing when I'm playing. But uh, that's just... Again, like I said, I mean, it, that's just all taken from what I've felt inside since I was a kid, you know. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, you know, I was like five or six years old, and I'd go to these uh, 
these little pizza joints, they'd be showing videos of Michael Jackson and stuff, and people are sitting down eating, and I'd go dance from table to table and, and do the moonwalk and do the centipede and stuff and break dancing. You know, I was always, you know, singing and dancing and just performing in front of people, you know. So I figure if I can mesh moonwalking like Michael Jackson while playing guitar like Buddy Guy or Jimi Hendrix, which I'll never touch those views, but if I could blend those two elements together and plus sing like the Staples, I think, I think I'll be in a good place. Spencer Chamberlain is one incredibly talented and super busy guy, being both the front man for Under Oath and his new project, Sleepwave. Spencer, thanks a lot for coming on The Antidote. Thanks for having me, dude. I suppose everything has really changed a bit for you now, because Under Oath is coming back together for a new tour. But the band breakup in 2013, that must have been brutal for you. I mean, here you are, yeah. you'd already put a decade of your life into the band. For me, that would have been really depressing. Yeah, it was, it was man. I, I think it was harder than I realized it was going to be. Like, when I was younger, and when Under Oath first started, I used to get a lot of anxiety, like, sleeping at night. I would just tell them, like, well, what if, what if I wake up and no one wants to do this anymore? I'm, you know, I'm screwed. You know, I didn't go to college. You know, you worry about stuff. You know, when I was, like, 19 or whatever, just be kind of, like, stressed that all my friends were going to college and getting jobs. And I was, like, traveling around in a van, you know. But I loved it. And, and, you know, that never deterred me from, like, the path that I envisioned for the band and where we were going to go and the things we were going to do. But it's still, like, a lot. And then a decade passes, and it happens. And at this point, you're more concerned that you have a mortgage and you have a life and you have bills, you know, you're established in a career that you've been in for 10 plus years, you know, that ending is, is almost crazy as the idea of like being a younger kid not going to college and stuff. It was uh, about as brutal as, as I thought anything like that would be. Like you go through all the stages, I think I was angry, I think I was depressed, I think I was, you know, hurt. All, all the different emotions that you feel from, I can imagine any sort of breakup, it's almost like maybe like a divorce. I don't know, I've never been married, but I can only imagine being with someone for 10 years and then just going, all right, it's over. And in this case, for Unreal, you know, we've carried the hatchet over the, the past couple of years of being broken up, but we were all best friends, you know, when we started. And as you become a man and, and an individual, you kind of drift apart over time. And, and then the breakup happens, you know, for some of us, we wanted to keep going and the other people didn't want. And I was one of the people that was still wanting to keep the band going and then when you know the other guys said they would do it uh, was just how it was going to be you know but that was that was a tough time in my life and I definitely you know went through a, a long array of emotions and stuff <laughs> when this interview with Spencer Chamberlain was being organized the plan had been to speak about his sleepwave project well that's when things changed just days before when under oath announced that they were coming back really an awesome time speaking with Spencer Next week, The Antidote returns to our regular show format, and you'll hear the bird songs. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the feathered kind. No, this is the last name and the performing name for these four siblings. And trust me, you'll enjoy it. This is just about the end of the 400th episode of The Antidote, and I've saved a fun interview segment to finish off the show. Bands have to have some other interest to keep themselves from being bored. And here's how War of Ages keeps themselves busy. See you next week. War of Ages has been around for over a decade. Yep. How did the band start? Well, basically, this band started with Steve, myself, and a couple other people working at Walmart. Uh, we all worked at Walmart. We were, you know, fresh out of high school. All met each other. I met Steve, asked him, let's start a band. And that's exactly what it was. We started a band and brought a couple of people in from Walmart. It was all Walmart-based band at one time. And uh, Steve and I just stuck it out and grabbed my brother and took him for a ride, too. <laughs> Does that mean that Walmart sells War of Ages CDs? Uh, they do, actually. Um, we, at least one of them that I know of does. Uh, the one that we worked at. <laughs> I've heard other Walmarts have it, too. Or at least they have it online. I think everybody's decreased their CDs uh, as far as what they've had in stock in general. But Walmart, like, that Walmart. Now we're going to explain what's going on. So the rest of the band, they're practicing their frisbee golf. Yes. They, oh, frisbee golf is a, a big, huge 
No, it's called disc golf. Yeah, I don't really play as much, but I say frisbee golf and they look at me like I'm a terrible human being. So if you hear random shouting and excitement, that's them. A guy flew to Denver, Colorado on this tour to give us a portable disc basket. That's a riot. Yeah, so they've been setting it up every venue in random places. And that gets set up first before yep. everything else. For anything else, the most important thing is to practice your putting. I don't really play. I played maybe four times in my entire life, but they're pretty adamant about it. I think they, they've even talked about going pro, which I think is kind of funny. But hey, we're more power to them. I'm all about supporting the little guys.